Citizen Reporter number 204, 24th of May, 2007. A pretty young girl standing in the garden. Brown shoes, soldier, come walking by. We live here in the United States of Amnesia. No one remembers anything before Monday morning. Everything is a blank. We have no history. I have a sweetheart who's in the army Across the sea in some far eastern land I'd never say... Lebanon, 1958. The United States feels its policy of containment in the Middle East is threatened. Responds openly and unilaterally. He's not lost in some battle Or even out in the ice and snow but in the arms of a foreign beauty Hello everyone and welcome to another edition of CitizenReporter.org. I am your host, Bicycle Mark, coming to you today from Berlin, Germany. And today, in keeping with the theme of this podcast, which, if you don't know, is underreported news, issues that don't get the attention I feel they deserve, and I think you often agree when you listen and learn more, in keeping with that theme, today I have a very special guest who, um, well, he'll tell his own story, but it's a, a unique individual who I had the pleasure of meeting recently in Amsterdam. And today on the program, he is my guest as we talk about UNIFIL, the United Nations mission in Lebanon in the late 70s, 80s, and uh, some on today as well. So stay with us, and uh, here it goes. By some battle scars. But my heart inside, it is the same love as when I left to join the war. So to begin, I'm sitting here today with uh, Thomas Milo, and there are many things you could talk about uh, with, uh, with someone like you, but uh, today I wanted to focus on um, Unifil. Uh, mm-hmm. If anyone doesn't know, of course, we'll, we'll, we'll explain in this recording. Mm-hmm. Um, so first of all, uh, for those who don't know it... Um, UNIFIL still exists, and, and what is it? Um, it's, a, uh, it's, it's, a, it's a conglomerate of army units from all over the world that's, that's supposed to act as one army of, for peacekeeping in Lebanon. It's, it's, um, um, it has the funny name uh, United Nations Interim Force in Lebanon, uh, and this is the longest interim that ever ever been. It started in seventy eight. Mm-hmm. Uh, uh, Israel had invaded South Lebanon up till the the first major river as a strategic barrier to sweep uh, to sweep it uh, of all and clear it of all um, all the uh, Palestinian elements that were continually attacking Israel and had recently uh, <coughs> managed to slip in. Uh, hijack a bus and kill everybody. So on the summer on the coastal road, a bus <laughs> was attacked by PLO fighters <coughs> or Israeli or Palestinian fighters. And in, as a as a as a as a reaction, the Israeli army moved into Lebanon and all the way up to the Leitani River. Mm-hmm. Uh, the UN uh, uh, put pressure on the United or what they what they, the so-called international community mm-hmm. <laughs> put pressure on on Israel to withdraw and, and uh, but as as a comp- compromise they. Uh, offered 
some kind of a buffer zone so the, that the PLO would not immediately be able to retain, re, to regain the area that, that they were uh, thrown out of. Uh, as, the buff, as, the, as the UNIFIL moved in, and the question is, what was UNIFIL? Well, UNIFIL is, is this, this, this international ragtag of units hmm. uh, put together to, uh, to function as one single army. Um, uh, interestingly, you had units from NATO countries like um, uh, originally France, uh, uh, <coughs> Norway. Mm-hmm. You had neutrals like the the Irish. You had uh, neutrals. Neutral. In well, the, 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 the Ireland is militarily neutral. Was not mm. part of the NATO uh, so. organization, which practically meant that they had they could have different caliber ammunition, different size bolts on their trucks. Uh, NATO is mainly one bureaucratic standardization or effort between a multitude of different uh, military uh, 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 traditions. Mm -hmm. Uh, (coughs) And then you had uh, uh, East Bloc or East Bloc trained uh, uh, army units. We had uh, uh, um, uh, uh, some of them became very vague, but we had Nigerians, who were, by the way, British trained from Nigeria. We had Fijians, also uh, New Zealand and Australian trained troops. Hmm. Uh, but um, uh, there was also an enormous difference in the um, uh, equipment, the personal discipline. They were, they were totally different. They were hmm. a ragtag army. Mm-hmm. And uh, the, the, the Dutch, in a way, were also expected to be part of pretty ragtag. The image of the Dutch soldier in those days were, was a long-haired pot-smoking idiot, uh, <laughs> which was half true but half not true because uh, most of the army was conscripted from uh, the countryside and the, the whole image of the Netherlands is totally based on, a, on, the, on Amsterdam. It's a complete uh-huh. misrepresentation <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> to, think, to think that, um, that uh, uh, the Netherlands is liberal and, and enlightened. Um, right. and, uh, so what you basically got, basically got was um, uh, the uh, battalion assigned for UNIFIL, potential fee, uh, 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 UN uh, uh, tasks. The assignment was already, uh, 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 I think, 20 years old when mm-hmm. the first call to duty came. And so uh, after the uh, New Guinea crisis in the early 1960s, mm-hmm. the Netherlands was actually one a part in a conflict where the UN was intervening. intervening. So the, the, the Dutch... Uh, uh, were defending the remainder of the big uh, um, island group that's Indonesian. Uh, they had not not given up w- uh, western, uh, sorry, eastern, uh, no, western New Guinea, mm-hmm. and um, made a considerable had made a considerable military effort to counter the uh, uh, increasing number of infiltrations and attacks by the Indonesian army. Mm-hmm. But Indonesia was. The biggest and is the biggest Islamic nation in the world. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So basically, here the mouse was roaring. The Dutch were taking on the biggest Islamic nation in the world, mm. and pretty effectively, we even downed a, 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 a ship. A ship was was sunk by the mm-hmm. Dutch navy. Mm-hmm. But <laughs> as a result, uh, the world community uh, in the UN was not really eager to see the Dutch deployed in any peacekeeping operation. The Islamic nations would block it. Mm-hmm. So the Dutch offered in a gesture to 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 be taken serious again after this disaster, public relations disaster in Indonesia. They offered 
uh, Marines unit and later they extended that with naval and uh, one army unit. And the army unit was the one that I eventually uh, joined. Eventually joined. So uh, prior to Unifil, how, how did it work? How did you initially get uh, in get placed there? How did that happen? Well, there, there are two two trajectories. There is the history. How did the Dutch army no, but get I'm up, thinking get in this up case there? Of you, and yeah. my personal trajectory tra- trajectory is different. Uh, we had conscript service, and I was redundant. I was not even called to duty. And the reason was uh, uh, that uh, with such a redundancy of conscripts, they, <laughs> the military priests preferred not to have people from Amsterdam. Hmm. The, because, because of the reasons that I just, um, just indicated before, the in Amsterdam population was considered far too liberal and too individualistic. They preferred to have the people from the countryside if they had the choice. Huh. So, um, uh, but then um, I happily uh, started studying. I, uh, I studied, uh, I have a, an interest in historical linguistics and dead languages, the deader the better. So mm-hmm. I, uh, after my upbringing with Latin and Greek, I went for old Slavic and, and what have you, uh, 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 Sanskrit. And, and, mm. and then uh, g- gradually... By accident, I discovered that it is actually quite fascinating to be able to travel into Bulgaria and speak Bulgarian. So from there, I uh, developed a love for learning these obs- relatively obscure languages. I, at one point, I was pretty good at Bulgarian, and I, um, but I got totally disappointed about Eastern Europe. Eastern Europe looked exactly like the Netherlands under occupation as... Uh, my parents descri- had described it to me. Mm. So I, I found it a depressing place, and uh, as uh, more and more foreign workers started to come into the Netherlands, I turned my attention to Turkish. Mm-hmm. And the other reason was that uh, with the Russian that I was acquiring, I could read Russian, and the Russians have their own backyard, which is Eurasia, and mm-hmm. the majority of the languages and territory, in, speak- in terms of territory, the, 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 the largest territory of the former. Soviet Union was actually Turkic, Turkish or Turkic speaking, Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, mm-hmm. uh, Kyrgyzstan, and uh, Tatarstan. These are enormous areas. Mm-hmm. And uh, there was a very interesting output of, um, of uh, <laughs> academic uh, publications that uh, if you, once you knew where to get them, were very cheap and very easy to get, mm-hmm. all about subjects that you wouldn't even think this existed, so I got very interested in, in Turkic, uh, and 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 the Russian helped me, and I went to Leiden to uh, the University of Leiden to change from Slavic to Turkic languages, but there they imposed Arabic. Okay. For for them, uh, Turkish was not part of a related group of languages, but it was part of a related culture of Islamic uh, 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 civilizations, and therefore you had to to do the main language of Islam, which is Arabic. Hmm. And um, so, uh, well, for me, Arabic was uh, was a bit of a bore. It was the next dead language. So I immediately added um, as many dialects as I could my, lay my hands on, because I wanted to to, to 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 bridge between the theoretical or the old language and the language that you could use to meet people, meet more people, talk to more people, and discover new points of view. Right. So that is what I had behind me, <coughs> and then. Um, Ten or twelve years after I would have been called up into the army, the Dutch government uh, embarked on a big adventure by sending this uh, this boor, this peasants 
battalion because the battalion, the 44 armored infantry uh, um, uh, unit uh, with the regimental name uh, Johann Willem Friso, the, Fris- mm-hmm. the Frisian Prince of Orange, is actually uh, 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 the designation of a territorial army unit mm-hmm. where the majority of the people were from these eastern provinces. Uh, and these were designated for UN duty. Mm-hmm. Because of the Indonesian uh, uh, history, uh, the Dutch had not ever been called upon to do this sort of thing and the military organization had had quietly dropped all the routines and the preparations for this so they were just a regular uh, uh, they were just a regular <coughs> armored infantry unit to uh, support uh, the defense against a massive onslaught of the russians in the north german plains <laughs> with only training and equipment for that sort of thing and then all of a sudden the the vehicles the vehicles were sprayed white and everybody got a blue hat and they were shipped put on a big ship and they were shipped uh, to Lebanon and um, somewhere in this process (laughs) uh, they had the good sense to figure out to to uh, to see if they could get Arabic speakers Mm -hmm. uh, in added to the organization Hmm. And that's where you came in. That that is where they flashed uh, briefly as a, a, an advertisement in the in the media, and people who knew me uh, said, "Tom, we saw, we saw this this advertisement. This is this is your job." And I agreed, so I applied, and uh, they took me. Hmm. My Arabic wasn't very good, but I figured that by the time they they discovered that my Arabic is not very good, I I've caught up with it anyways. <laughs> and indeed, that's how it happened. I mean, yeah. you 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 get yeah. to uh, southern Lebanon, and what kind of tasks do you find yourself doing on a daily basis? Well, uh, let, let me explain one more thing uh, that, that, that is in a way of a, it's almost amusing but uh, there was no concept of peacekeeping and of interpre- and military interpreting in the Dutch army so they, they basically said okay uh, we take you and uh, <coughs> you can report uh, then and then and uh, you get your uniform and there you go. I said something missing I was thinking of Monty Python you know where you have this operation room and ah patient patient uh-huh. ah. well in this case I said I think I've missed something in this conversation what do you mean the major said I said where's my military training ah he said, that's a jolly good idea he said yeah military training I, 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 I shall see what I can do for you <laughs> Huh. And uh, just imagine that later when I got the training, I, uh, they said, well, the, the Dutch army, the, the army in general, is the biggest educational institution in the country because the only thing it does is educate, to train people, educate. So I, I got uh, a, 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 a shortened officer's training mm-hmm. as they would normally give to, um, to uh, useless academics that are called up and then they taught them to some basic things like how to don a gas mask uh, and take it off and uh, and fortunately I got some more than that and Mm -hmm. I was also uh, anyway to cut cut this short uh, (laughs) I I pride myself on being uh, probably the only uh, Dutch uh, officer who was uh, trained at his own request (laughs) (laughs) (coughs) why did I do this because uh, 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 it happened that uh, the uh, the people who actually took on this this challenge of 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 turning from academic from the academic world or free roaming students mm-hmm. into join the army uh, they all came from the University of Amsterdam of all places mm-hmm. uh, and uh, 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 so I quickly knew uh, what I was going 
in uh, what, I, what, what, what was coming at me. Uh, actually, uh, <coughs> the first man to go with the first <laughs> quartermaker unit and reconnaissance, reconnaissance who was had been a reserve officer who was a, a co-student, a fellow student, and, and he, he reported to me all his, uh, his experiences. And mm-hmm. I quickly understood that uh, you don't necessarily have to be able to fire a machine gun at other people when you're in a peacekeeping role, but you have to understand what a machine gun does, how precise it is, and how thick your cover has to be in order to make sure that the bullets don't cut through it. So I wanted this course. Mm-hmm. I wanted... Anyway, so uh, this is this is um, and now why do you want that? Well, <laughs> the peacekeeping uh, was a, a, a label uh, a tag put onto it, but it was basically a, a political operation to uh, get the Israelis uh, withdraw as much as possible. But in fact, they never they never withdrew, hmm. uh, justifying on the other side the PLO politics of not withdrawing on their part or the PLO never really uh, uh, were thrown out of uh, Tyre the, the major city inside south of the Litania River mm-hmm. and since the Palestinians were able to maintain a pocket well inside the designated UN uh, demilitarized zone the Israelis by retaliation decided not to withdraw uh, this escalated so both sides blamed each other for not sticking to uh, keeping uh, uh, sticking to the agreement mm-hmm. and both tried to get to take to snatch us, uh, snatch away as much as uh, a territory from the UN as they could <laughs> this led to uh, to actual combat Mm-hmm. Uh, some fierce combat uh, occurred between the French uh, 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 paratroopers, naval paratroopers, so that, that's uh, Marines, <laughs> yeah. uh, who were also um, in their... Uh, uh, They're in the same base, uh, essentially. Well, no, the French paratroopers took have, were, had the same... Well, we succeeded them later. The ah, okay. <coughs> each, okay. each country was designated a block uh, in the area, uh, a couple hundred square kilometers... Mm-hmm. which like we had an, uh, about 150 200 square kilometers mm-hmm. to uh, patrol with uh, um, uh, essentially 600 infantry men that is about 1.5 soldier at uh, a given moment for a square kilometer yeah. uh, uh, but um, <laughs> the uh, the French uh, successfully uh, repelled uh, Palestinians and actually threw them out of the so-called uh, Iron Triangle, uh, an area, that, uh, a wedge inside their territory, but then uh, uh, their commander was ambushed in one of his regular uh, trips to meet with the PLO leadership well outside the UN territory, hmm. and they killed all his bodyguards, and he lost one eye, and uh, the French were so upset that they withdrew their troops, and this was when the vacancy occurred, mm-hmm. where the UN turned around and said, we have an interesting uh, uh, challenge for the Dutch government. No government wanted to send troops. Well, after the France, the French withdrew their paratroops, mm-hmm. and that that section and that is this the section. And this continues in 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 in, in a, 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 a belt of of a conti- contiguous army units that together were supposed to uh, block the uh, movement. Bet- of the Israelis to the north and the Palestinian fighters to the south. Mm. south. <laughs> the, the factual <coughs> situation was <coughs> that there was this iron triangle, mm-hmm. a wedge into the area, which made it very, very thin at points. And uh, uh, 
you were asking about how did I get there? Well, uh, the answer is that uh, people around me alerted me to this opportunity. I mm. took it uh, to my own surprise. I was I was uh, accepted. I got the training. Yeah. And after a while, I found myself there wearing a Dutch military uniform mm. and a weapon and a dictionary. <laughs> and a dictionary. So, so here you are. It's very interesting. Uh, as we sat down, uh, yeah. Thomas took out this uh, a belt uh, that has the sort yeah. of pocket for the gun and also uh, a large pocket, which he has just fit in uh, the dictionary. Yes, and I, I, I'm actually bringing this out because it, it, it led to an, um, a very interesting misunderstanding. Uh, you know, this is how we would walk there. Uh-huh. Uh, one pistol, that was actually enough. So if you were lost for words, you always had a pistol. Well, <laughs> in fact, no, no the, the thing is that um, this kind of ammunition pouch really goes with the infantryman. The, they, hmm. they have two of them. Yeah. This is World War II style uh, belt uh, webbing. <laughs> we still wore them. Right. Um, but um, I use it for a dictionary. In one instance, I was uh, I was at the uh, 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 PLO headquarters. I w- we would have weekly meetings with the PLO in order to anticipate on possible problems and to see how the relations were developing or deteriorating. So, now this was a very bad meeting. They were very very angry and aggressive, hmm. and they blamed us for having fired a thing and there the word blurred. I didn't know what it was, and. Uh, it were, they were so angry and so aggressive that they said, okay, gentlemen, I understand you are upset, but allow me to check this because I don't know this word. Uh, so I, I, I reached for my pouch and before I could touch it, the room was empty of PLO people. They had left through the windows and the door without even bothered, bothering to open. They had just crashed through the windows and through the door out. And I was sitting there with the major, the uh, head of the operations uh, section of the Dutch uh, army, uh, the Dutch, Dutch battalion, and there is this interpreter with his pouch. And I, nevertheless, I pulled out the dictionary, looked up the word. It was a an elimination grenade, a mudita, mm-hmm. and uh, I didn't know that word because uh, you learn on the job. Right. But <laughs> what did it learn us? What what did, what did, what what did it teach us? Well, yeah. that they were wearing uh, 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 bomb belts. Okay. And they thought that I was wearing one. Uh-huh. <laughs> Which is a bit <coughs> odd, considering that probably no peacekeepers had ever uh, uh, worn one or done such an act. But no, but, but no, but of course. But the point is that in 19, 1980, uh, in Europe, people didn't have the concept of bomb belts. They are recent, as mm. far as they're concerned, and they are, they are totally con- associated with Islamic extremism and the promise of virgins in heaven. Hmm. But what people forget is that PLO was a secular organization mm-hmm. where they carefully tried to eliminate out of the equation the religion, religious affiliations because they were trying to compromise between communists, Muslims, and Christians. Mm-hmm. And yet everybody wore a uh, what I would call a tactical parachute. They, uh, uh, they were when these people uh, um, uh, uh, were in the position that they had to surrender to Israelis. They blew themselves up, and they hmm. were dressed for that. Hmm. But they didn't realize that that my uh, pouch. I mean, it was weird to have an officer with such a huge pouch. Right. But it was my dictionary. Yes. And so you you have these meetings. I assume you also had meetings with Israeli leaders. But yes. it seems like they were unpredictable from from month to month. We had regular meetings, but the the actual subjects were unpredictable. We had, for instance, one meeting where we were invited 
uh, well, we had a visit from uh, the commander of the northern sector of the Israeli army. Mm-hmm. And, and everybody was ordered out. Uh, only I was allowed to stay, well, let's say only the major, that, 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 that the, uh, the highest operations officer of the Dutch battalion was allowed to stay. And I was with him as his assistant. And there were two Israelis. Uh, but everybody was out. Uh, mm-hmm. Maps were put on the table, and mm-hmm. they were looking at this. Uh, they pointed at the Iron Triangle. You are here. Uh, <laughs> we are planning to wipe out this, 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 this. He would say that this, to you. Yes, yes. yes. And uh, uh, we would like you to look the other way. That was a surprise development, and they, they were uh, they were banking on the uh, friendship between the Netherlands and Israel. And then uh, our major had to explain that, uh, yes, there is a deep friendship with the Netherlands, but we are here in the UN role. And if you come in there, we shoot at you. Mm-hmm. We'll, we'll shoot at you. We're open fire. Mm-hmm. So don't expect us to allow your helicopters to pass on and attack the, uh, the Palestinian positions. Because that's our role here. Um, and you, you, you can you can you can negotiate what you want, but um, um, and this this I, uh, this man I worked with very uh, intensively. He was uh, later became the uh, commander of the Dutch uh, uh, Commando Corps, the, mm. the Green Berets. Mm-hmm. And, and, uh, he was a fierce man, not not very um, uh, uh, broadly educated. They hardly knew his. Uh, well, he, he was he was would have been good at German because all these all these officers. Were basically uh, uh, mi- uh, had a mindset to deal with the Russians in the German plains, mm-hmm. and their main language was German. <laughs> yeah, and this was completely different. Yes, it was completely different. And I know that in one in- instance, for instance, uh, he, he said in the discussion about the territories, he said, "You have right," which is "Sie haben recht," mm-hmm. where I said, "Major, you mean you are right because mm-hmm. they have mm-hmm. no rights." Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> but so in that particular episode, he he did held he held his ground. And, oh yeah, and, and, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, we said no, no deal. So so we we made it perfectly clear to them with the maps on the table that if they crossed this line, we would shoot. And did did either side, the, 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 the PLO or the Israeli army, ever manage to strike such a deal with any other uh, UN uh, battalion? You know. Uh, we have the impression that uh, whether there was a deal or not, the uh, uh, Senegalese battalion, that's the battalion that I couldn't get the, na- the name of, the Senegalese, uh, uh, I don't think that they had a, an East Bloc doctrine, but I was saying that we had NATO units, we mm-hmm. had n- units from neutral countries, we had units from uh, uh, from third world countries, African units, uh, the Pacific, uh, the Fijians. Mm-hmm. Uh, countries that sometimes could not afford to send very heavily equipped units. They could only send bare soldiers. And then the UN supplied the uniforms, the boots, mm-hmm. and the trucks, yeah. <laughs> and the guns. Uh, and um, uh, the Senegalese uh, are known, uh, and I personally w- was witness, witness to this, uh, not to be very active in uh, suppressing activities of the PLO or the Palestinian fighters. They were to the north, so they were very close to the so-called tire pocket. That was the area that the Israelis had failed to empty of Palestinians. And from t- the town of Tyre, they had expanded back into a, c- a coastal area, which justified their presence of in a border strip well inside Lebanon that they had promised to uh, to leave. Hmm. Uh, these uh, Senegalese were very were on the north of the UN uh, uh, deployment. 
and uh, they were uh, the Senegalese were were supposed to 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 buffer and to keep out the uh, Palestinians, hmm. which I didn't. And um, as an Arabic speaker, I was sometimes um, uh, included in patrols that were not by the Dutch army, but by the unarmed uh, UNMO, the United Nations Military Observers. Hmm. Uh, uh, So I joined one of these UNMO teams in in a reconnaissance inside the Senegalese deployment um, to verify rumors that that there had been... um, uh, widespread activities, military presence in the streets um, uh, by uh, PLO fighters and um, well we could confirm that. They, we, we went into the into various villages there and we saw PLO walking on the roofs with guns and machine guns and we drove there with our white jeep and we went to the nearest Senegalese army camp and they were very active, they were doing their laundry and they were putting up lines and putting the, the laundry on the line and, 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 and the others were cooking food and I mean there, there was a there was a definite a Senegalese military presence mm-hmm. <laughs> but they were made no uh, no attempt to uh, to interfere with the uh, PLO which was their mission mm-hmm. and so you were you were there for uh, what period of time how long <coughs> I, I went there on two tours of six months each mm-hmm. And during those two tours, did you start to get the sense over time that, uh, if we could use the word improvement, uh, in terms of the agreements that were supposed to be met, in terms of your conversations with people and, and, and also rumors, uh, that the situation was making any, any more in terms of peace or, or, or moving towards the deal that was originally supposed to be kept, uh, did it ever no. get closer to that? No, uh, uh, actually, uh, in the... In my first, <coughs> I was there in two, uh, I would say, significant periods uh, in, in 1980 81 <coughs> and in 1983. Uh, 1981, excuse me, maybe I have to um, yeah. clear my throat. I was there <coughs> um, uh, first in 1980 81 uh, when we were definitely between two parties. Uh, there was an increased, there were only increasing numbers of, of, of infiltration attempts, and each infiltration attempt was basically a suicide mission, where every man that we stopped was dressed to kill uh, others and himself. So he also wore uh, a bomb belt. Mm-hmm. And uh, if we didn't stop them, they would be wiped out by the Israelis. They never made it alive. So mm-hmm. basically, if we if we if we caught them, there were there was a sense of relief even sometimes with these people. Mm-hmm. <laughs> but it could also take up to six hours before we had managed to get them out in one piece. While in the meantime, the Israelis, who had of, of course uh, observed that something was going on, started random shelling with mortars and machine guns firing into the area where we were confronting eyeball to eyeball the same people that were trying to go towards the Israelis. <laughs> yeah. So, um, uh, in this period, there were m- many rumors that, the, <laughs> that there would be a major Israeli attack to stop all this nonsense. There was an exercise to withdraw the whole Dutch battalion to the beach to be rolled onto a uh, 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 landing craft of the <laughs> US 6th Fleet, I believe, the Mediterranean Fleet. And uh, in my second uh, tour in 1983, it had already happened. The Israelis in 1982 lost patience with the whole situation and more or less inflated the whole UN attempt uh, operation by rolling over the UN and 
not the first but now the second river and well up to Beirut eventually under the leadership of Sharon mm. and uh, so to answer the short answer to your question uh, did you see a positive development or, or improvement or increased uh, implementation of the agreements nope mm. and the long answer is uh, I have two points in history f- from where I could personally witness what was going on mm. I saw it before the Israeli uh, invasion of 1982 when there was a crescendo of of aggression towards Israel and a crescendo of retaliations from the Israelis on these uh, attempts. And then there was this explosion where the Israelis uh, rolled over the UN. Mm -hmm. And then after that, what I saw, I came a year after that, uh, inside the Israeli-occupied territory, a new phenomenon was born, which is actually the beginning of today's crisis. Uh, the local population <coughs> developed were originally very glad to see the Israelis arrive and to see them throw out the Palestinians who had been hijacking their lives and abusing their territory. Mm-hmm. So they actually applauded the Israelis when they came in. But the Israelis thought that this this applause was the beginning for a, a pro-Israeli infrastructure that they could force them, them bend, bend them into being on their side, and that was one bridge too far because there were Shia, Shia they could not be seen publicly in the Arab world to, to to collaborate with the Israelis. They refused, and the Israelis did not accept this as a logical position. But they used every trick they had in their uh, uh, secret services armory. To uh, inventory to uh, to to force them to do this. So there were there were abductions and, and 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 the reaction was that out of a relatively modest Amal movement, which ran the show there, the organized expression of the South Lebanese Shia public opinion, a new phenomenon uh, 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 became very strong, which is today known as Hezbollah. The Israelis created Hezbollah. It was <coughs> because of their mismanagement <laughs> of the of their occupation of the south. And before Hezbollah got strong, uh, the Israelis uh, 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 discovered to their dismay that uh, with all their tanks and armed soldiers, they had no answer to kids who would throw rocks at them. The first rock throwing by kids to armed people that I've seen was by the Lebanese kids to the PLO fighters. Mm -hmm. I was actually caught in between, where we were uh, uh, trying to stop a PLO group to set up a, a new position inside the UN area, threatening a Lebanese village. And the Lebanese kids thought that we were not hard enough on these people. They wanted the, us to shoot, to just kill them all, fire. And, I mean, we were big, we had armored cars. We mm-hmm. had surrounded these people with armored cars, with infantry all over. And then I went forward with an officer, another officer, to, to, to negotiate them out. And the Lebanese got sick and tired of all this negotiation. They wanted us to to act like real mm-hmm. soldiers. And they underpinned that argument by throwing stones at the Palestinians that we were trying to talk to. Mm. And in a reaction, the Palestinians cocked their, arm, their rifles and, and aimed them at us. And, 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 and this developed in what I could describe as kind of a mock execution. So that was actually, uh, that moment was what I thought would be the last of Tom Milo. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. <laughs> I thought it was a bit bit ridiculous. I spent a lot of time uh, learning all these funny languages and and and, and, and even uh, making attempts to to do realistic uh, imag- uh, impression of South Lebanese Arabic, and then to be killed by an idiot who couldn't even write his own name in Arabic. Mm-hmm. <laughs> <laughs> that was um, that uh, 
kids with stones against soldiers developed then into kids with stones, not against the Palestinians, but against the Israelis. Mm -hmm. That was already in the early 1980s, and the intifada that everybody followed from the press was actually copying a very successful resistance tactic that developed in South Lebanon. And many other tactics, little things, the bomb uh, vehicle. Uh, I was in Lebanon when the U.S. Marines were blown up in Beirut, you know, the truck bomb in Mm -hmm. in 1983. And then the, the, the French paratroopers, uh, were in one day, they had two bomb, two, two bomb attacks on the French and the U.S. Uh, marine base. Uh, that was done. We had uh, 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 attacks with, uh, uh, from the north uh, on, the, on the pro-Israeli militias, people who uh, would pack uh, an ambulance with ammunition or with guerrilla fighters and use the internationally agreed Red Cross marks to go through our checkpoints and then unload them or blow them up inside the other territories. All these things, uh, the roadside bombs, uh, mm-hmm. when, when um, uh, during the occupation you had the situation that uh, uh, the Israeli army was deployed everywhere, but the UN had refused to withdraw. So you had two fully functional armies m- intermingling. So the air was teeming with Israelis. And at the same time, there were many UN uh, units deployed and they were running their daily routines. There were supply convoys. Now imagine the Israelis. There were they there were road bombs mm-hmm. already, distantly uh, 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 detonated road bombs, and they 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 they, 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 they sold out Israeli vehicles. So they were green and we were white. So, uh, and the green vehicles tried to 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 slip into the white convoys in order to to be safe off the of these uh, roadside bombs, mm. and. Um, uh, we were on strict orders that if uh, an Israeli army vehicle had joined a UN patrol that we had to pull off the road and wait until they left and it happens uh, yeah so so, yeah and as a result you had let's say uh, a mixture of 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 uh, of UN uh, uh, personnel that were trying to 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 continue their daily routines and and, and Israelis that were sometimes very nervous and and fearful of the the risk of this particular area. Hmm. Um, anyway, uh, <coughs> the um, <coughs> that that is what I've seen, and and, and I wonder uh, historically speaking, you could say that that much of the uh, uh, resistance uh, uh, tactics that were later uh, uh, encountered in the occupied territories uh, in the West Bank and the Gaza Strip actually developed in South Lebanon Hmm. as almost a biological reaction to the massive presence of alien elements. Hmm. Shifting gears somewhat, and and perhaps as a a final question for today, although Hmm. there's always so Hmm. much more uh, to talk about, um, I grew up in the United States in, the, in a climate that still to this day is very skeptical, I would even say disrespectful, towards the idea of peacekeeping, uh, especially skeptical, mm-hmm. um, sort of as if it's some kind of a, a joke that could never work and this mm-hmm. sort of thing. I mean, you hear it over and over, even from non-conservative mm-hmm. elements in, in the United States. And of course, many people there have no contact with anyone that's really done peacekeeping or that's been involved. Yeah. Um, what kind? Of, how would you react or how would you respond to a? Uh, you'll be in Washington soon to someone the who says something. Baby like blue, is a typical the baby blue. Yeah, I've heard the expression. Yeah, yeah. yeah. Well, it's silly. It's uh, uh, we have a, a green army, 
uh, not a bad one. And uh, if people call on the Green Army to do a baby blue task, they do it. And now <coughs> for the effectiveness. Well, you could also be skeptical of the full, full-blown, uh, 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 aggressive uh, uh, form of, of, of military uh, deployment. Uh, I think that if they had more baby blue concepts in the Iraq operation, they could have made it a success. Baby blue, <laughs> to use this this, this st- strange derogatory uh, term, means that uh, you accept the fact that you are not overpowering another party that you're operating in an in a culturally alien environment and if you're doing this in an intelligent way you try to understand whom you're dealing with and try to uh, to do this effect as effectively as possible and in the case of Iraq it would have meant that you would have taken off your helmets and your wrap around sunglasses and your body armor as quickly as possible and as brave soldiers take the risk that yes you're a bit less you're a bit more vulnerable, but that's what soldiering is about. You're always vulnerable, even with the biggest pack of armor. And if it makes a point to be seen as human beings by the population and thereby gradually uh, um, 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 uh, restoring a sense of security in the population, then uh, that is the way to go. After all, if you walk around like the um, uh, forces are now, do- are now doing in Iraq in this heavily uh, uh, defensive form, it only uh, you only make it perfectly plain to everybody that you feel completely insecure, and therefore it's even worse for the civilians. So the first thing to do is be easygoing, be open, look in people's eyes, uh, make jokes, uh, try to speak their language, try to know their names, and 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 try to to engage into social contact with these people. After all, <coughs> it's easy to kill people, and it's very difficult to deal with them. So the baby blue approach is basically a bizarre contradiction where you are deploying an element of a society that is designated for violence and then tell them don't do anything but violence. There is a contradiction and it could also fall on US soldiers or if if they are called to this task it's a very nasty and difficult task and it requires a lot of humor. Actually I did it together with the US soldiers. I I still I still have a good friendship with a man who is now a professor of international relations in mm-hmm. at Boston University. And we he was he was he was uh, assigned to Unifil as an unarmed officer and we, but I respected him because he knew Arabic. Mm-hmm. And that is the that is the trick. Uh, the little Arabic that we had only two Arabic speaking officers we were, we were respected by the whole UNIFIL as an organization and also by the population because they knew the Dutch had Arabic speakers they never knew which one it was because we, to them we all looked the same <laughs> <laughs> alright well I, I definitely wanted to end on that point uh, Thomas Milo thank you very much for your time this morning yeah oh mercy mercy me Things ain't how it's supposed to be Where did all this blue sky go? Forcing it's the wind that blows From the north and south and sea It's killing you and it's killing me Oh, oh mercy, mercy me Yeah, yeah, yeah No, things ain't how it's supposed to be so once again, a big thank you to Thomas Milo for taking the time to speak with me at his home. It was an absolute pleasure, and I very much hope that we get to hear from him again in the future, as he has so much to tell us and so much to, I think, teach the world. 
Um, for anyone who would like to read notes and find more information, I'll put some on the post for this episode on citizenreporter.org. You can, of course, leave a comment there. I'm also using the email citizenreporterpodcast at gmail.com, or, of course, the old bicycle mark at gmail will also work. I hope you're enjoying the program. I hope uh, you're also enjoying the slight name change, although it hasn't changed the priority, which is, of course, bringing you the news that you won't normally get in the mainstream. This is alternative. This is podcasting. So thanks for joining me, and I'll see you soon. See you. See ya. Thank you.